0: Margaret Talev. Welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today's Friday, November 5th, and we're focusing on President Biden's big policy ambitions. Democrats are scrambling to prove to voters that they can actually get big things done. They're reeling from that huge election night for Republicans at the start of this week, which had disastrous implications for Democrats in next year's midterm elections. But now, two major spending packages that could be the pillars of President Biden's legacy are finally moving. The $1.2 trillion infrastructure package and the Build Back Better package, which is poised to dramatically expand social spending. Now, the pandemic and its impact on the economy have given President Biden that rare opportunity to spend so big that it could expand the programs that all Americans come to rely on day after day, like FDR or LBJ or Eisenhower. But is it really on point to compare Biden's agenda to Roosevelt's New Deal of the 30s or Dwight D. Eisenhower's notion of an interstate highway system or Lyndon Johnson's Great Society? To get a fuller sense of how Biden's policy agenda really fits into American history and how historians and Americans might someday think about this current moment. We're joined by Julian Zelizer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton. Now we're joined by Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton and a prolific presidential historian who's written and edited 22 books. Hi, Julian.
1: Hi, it's nice to be with you.
0: So it seems pretty clear now that President Biden is at least going to get to sign a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package into law, and maybe that bigger Build Back Better package that will greatly expand social spending. What's the precedent for this kind of massive infusion? How does it compare in American history?
1: Look, there's there's two different kinds of models. One is the FDR-LBJ model, the New Deal and the Great Society, where you just have a huge number of programs that remake the relationship between government and citizens. It's not clear if he just has infrastructure in the American Rescue Plan. That's what we're looking like. A different model is maybe President Obama, who he was vice president for, who in his first year was able to pass three significant measures, financial regulation, a stimulus and the Affordable Care Act that expanded government. They didn't remake government. But I think as of now, that's that's more what we might be looking at.
0: You know, Obama might be a closer uh, approximation to what's actually going to happen, but that's never stopped Joe Biden from talking about needing to meet the moment, and to meet the time, to talking about FDR and talking about um, LBJ. And I was really struck by uh, Abby Spanberger's comment. This is a Democrat, Democratic Congresswoman from Virginia in The New York Times, <laughs> she said of Biden, no one elected him to be FDR. How do you see the political mandate? How did you see it before? And particularly, how did you see it in terms of Tuesday night's election results and those off-year races?
1: In terms of a mandate, Biden doesn't have the Congress that either of the other two presidents did. So it's it's fair to ask if if they would have been able to pass what they did Given opposition of the Republicans and a filibuster uh, norm that we now have, which requires 60 votes on everything, he doesn't face very good circumstances, let alone uh, a kind of wild media universe with disinformation and partisan news. But I don't think she's necessarily right. Look, shortly after the election... He did push through Congress the American Rescue Plan, which was $1.9 trillion. It was wildly popular in the polls. And that was more than about him just not being Donald Trump. It was about the legislation and some excitement. So I think it's hard to read exactly where the electorate uh, is. There's an argument to be made. What he really needs to do is get these through Congress, as opposed to debating whether it's what the public wants. Because if there's no benefits... There's nothing voters really feel other than what they see on TV or hear on the radio or read on the
0: news. Of course, he's been wanting to get something through Congress for months. And he said pretty early on, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, I don't care what you give me. Just give me something. Even something less will be something more than nothing. That's not what he said. But that seems to be what he meant, right? Which is like, we have to do something big. And and I think his point was even $1.75 trillion would be very big. But it seems like the debate inside the Democratic Party is like, is something smaller enough or does it have to be huge? And were Tuesday night's elections a a repudiation of progressives and liberals and major social spending? Seems clear that they were to a lot of independents, but to a lot of Democrats, that stuff is very exciting. Uh, A congresswoman or a congressman from a swing district in a swing state is obviously going to have a different view about how big it has to be to make a difference. But Is there any historical reference that can point us to whether voters care about the size of something like this, or is it more emotional and psychological?
1: I think it's more than emotional or psychological. It's also about what is the benefit they receive. So, you know, Medicare, as an example, was very controversial when it was being debated. It didn't pass for many years, not just a few months. It was an ongoing effort. But when LBJ finally gets it through in nineteen sixty five, the reason it's so powerful is it it gave a concrete benefit. If you were old and over sixty five, you now had health insurance. and And many other stakeholders in the health industry who had opposed it start to like it because they see, the money rolling in. Dwight Eisenhower, you know, he signs on to an interstate highway program. And that is so powerful because people have the roads that they drive on. And I think ultimately that's what was lacking right now. And so I think from the start, Democrats were in a difficult position. They were defending something controversial without having people feel the actual benefits of anything. And so I think those are the models that Democrats might want to keep in mind uh, about the delivery rather than the, the debate.
0: You think about Medicare. You think about the interstate system. Those are things that you can see or feel. You know what they mean. When you look at what is probably in the Build Back Better plan, has changed so many times. What's in, what's out, and whatever the House passes, can the Senate pass it? But when you look at those elements. What are the one or two big things, the big kind of soft social infrastructure things that could redefine a generation that, that Americans could get excited about the way they could about interstate or, or health care coverage?
1: Well, one was taken out and now put back by Speaker Pelosi, which is family leave. That's something everyone, red and blue states, cares about. It's a struggle. Uh, to pay for your child uh, or children. And if all of a sudden the government is helping with that and that becomes a normal part, like Head Start did for a long time, I I think that would have a a really big impact for many Americans. And then the infrastructure package, which is the other bill, uh, the money would go to things that are very tangible. There's people in many different parts of the country who live with a crumbling infrastructure, uh, whether it's, you know, trains that aren't running well on uh, railroads that need to be fixed, or whether you're driving on roads or bridges that are broken. If money starts flowing to that and Biden, who's a good salesperson, connects it to what he has done, I think both of those can be very powerful contributions.
0: For better or for worse, do you think American presidents get too much credit or blame for uh, whether packages like this pass or succeed, like, is is it up to Biden or is it up to Congress? And and how does history remember those things?
1: Well, history will remember what he does or doesn't do. and And that is how we measure a president. Very often, it's the legislative output that takes place during the period there in the White House. The thing is, It's also fair to look at Congress. Lyndon Johnson had, after the 1964 election, 68 Democrats in the Senate, and also a huge majority in the House. And he had a Republican Party after 1965 that was terrified of looking like Barry Goldwater, meaning a very conservative Republican. So they were willing to compromise. And so he had a Congress that was ready to pass lots of stuff, really, whether he wanted to or not and those are conditions that are important. President Biden doesn't have that. But it's still fair to say you get what you get and you get the congress you have and you have to figure out how to work with that environment. So there will be critics who say he didn't push hard enough early when he had that window of high approval rates and momentum and lean in on a senator mansion to go with the party and and those are criticisms that are impossible to escape even though they miss what's the environment that the president faces
0: when you look at the span of american history how much of a pendulum effect is there in terms of society's openness to to bigger government to government expansions and social social safety net expansions and, and what does that attach to is it attached to wartime or the economy or what are the factors that decide whether america wants to go big like we're talking about in this moment
1: Yeah, there's not many moments when you have huge expansions of government. We've now talked about FDR and LBJ. There's not tons of those. Those are the two uh, big moments in contemporary times, meaning from the 1930s through today. I think some of it is crisis. You can have a a massive economic crisis that makes government the only solution as opposed to one possible solution. During times of war, we see huge expansions of government. It's in World War II, for example, that we get the mass income tax system that we're all familiar with today. There's also moments when social movements put issues on the agenda. I think in the 60s, civil rights uh, organizers helped to put all kinds of questions and policies on the table and change what was considered the conventional wisdom about what could be done in Washington. So often you need external forces of those magnitudes to to change the political dynamics on Capitol Hill. The status quo is often to do very little. Congress often needs a push to do a lot.
0: You think about some of those big moments in the last year or so, there's January 6th, there's the pandemic, there's the Black Lives Matter movement and the year that followed the murder of George Floyd. Is that enough to create a moment of big change and and a lasting change in the country?
1: It it could be, but so far it's not. One of the things all those forces are running into is a, a pretty disciplined and united Republican Party that isn't really moved by any of that and which also uh, operates within a a conservative media world where the information flow is very different and, and either interprets all those issues in a way that is certainly different than the way Democrats do, and in some cases puts out information that just isn't true and contradicts what movements and what crises are saying. So we're at a weird point where you're seeing crises of that magnitude. Certainly the pandemic was. And certainly the Black Lives Matter movement post-George Floyd was incredibly significant, but the political system is still generally holding firm. Again, the American Rescue Plan was really big, and and we shouldn't kind of move too fast over that. And I think if in a week or two weeks, the infrastructure bill has passed, and Even a $1.7 trillion uh, social safety net expansion has passed. It it might just be that all of that was actually enough to have another moment of government expansion.
0: It may not be enough for Democrats to get reelected in the majority in 2022. (laughs) It may not be enough to cement Joe Biden's popularity at this moment in time in American history. What do you think about the way history will remember the Democratic Party at this moment?
1: It's a great point. I mean, often you are remembered favorably over time for what you do with legislation. But at the moment, it doesn't always have political benefits. President Obama was rewarded for all of his efforts with the Tea Party and a Republican House. Lyndon Johnson in 1966 saw a conservative coalition of Southern Democrats and Republicans regain control of Congress, after he passed all the Great Society. And FDR in 1938 had a conservative coalition take form in response to a lot of what he did. So often presidents basically burn political capital in the short term to get things done. And they hope that over the long term, they can get reelected, that it's good for their legacy and that it's good for the party. But in the short term... Midterms can be absolutely brutal. And sometimes your biggest accomplishments uh, turn into things that cost you seats in the House and Senate.
0: Presidential historian Julian Zelizer, thanks so much for talking today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back. What we're thinking about today is a story about the ultimate house flip gone wrong, one that highlights the dystopia that America's housing market has become. If you were obsessed with Tuesday's elections, you might have missed this other huge story that broke the same day. Zillow, the home buying and selling platform, whose app millions of middle-aged Americans are addicted to like a video game, I've heard, not speaking from personal experience, announced the end of its iBuying program. This iBuying program had relied on an algorithm to buy and sell houses. An algorithm. It seemed like a no-lose proposition. They wanted to buy 5,000 houses a month. But Zillow got way over its skis with this technology, and in three months, they lost as much as they'd made the entire year before. On Tuesday, the CEO announced that the company would be ending the program and laying off 25% of its employees, one out of four. Somehow, this was a worse week for Zillow than for Democrats. Why does it matter? Well, If you've been priced out of the pandemic market, you might feel a little schadenfreude. But beyond that, this is a clear sign of what can go wrong when you have a hot market beset with technology that can move faster, but not necessarily smarter than people. And it should give anyone betting on automation some serious pause. My colleague Felix Salmon will dig in deeper to this story and what's happening in America's hottest housing markets next week on Axios Recap. Before we go, we'd like to recommend another podcast you may like. Join Quartz Obsession every week as reporters from their global newsroom dig into the most fascinating facets of an object, where it came from, how it got to us, and what it can tell us about the forces that are changing the way we live and work. From the economics and technology behind instant ramen and sweatpants to the history of QR codes and more, let's discover more together. Listen to Quartz Obsession wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Margaret Talib, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.